Well, anyway, my friend Keith is with us today. If you were with us during our Bob Dylan series where we talked about blowing in the wind and finding meaning and purpose, uh, Keith shared during that series that one of the things that impacted him was a Bob Dylan song that took him as a scientist and began him on a journey to faith. And we thought that was incredibly interesting that a man of science would be propelled by Bob Dylan. And we asked him to come back today to talk about his real expertise, which is brain science and how the science of modern day research validates and substantiates the claims the Bible's been making for over 2,000 years. Can we give a warm welcome to our friend Keith Crutcher? Thanks for being here today, Keith. Thanks, Chad. Oh, thank you, Chad. I, uh, yeah, it's a real privilege to be here. I, I, the last time I was with you folk, I, I had a chance to talk a little bit about an experience I had with uh, my grandmother and Bob Dylan, both telling me the same thing on the same day. And, um, and that was a pivotal, a pivotal event in my life. I'm here in a slightly different capacity. I want to try to reinforce some of the conclusions that Chad's been drawing about the importance of capturing your thoughts, replacing your thoughts, and giving you a little bit of science to back up the idea that, in fact, the brain does actually undergo these kinds of changes. Before I do that, uh, just a little bit about myself. Um, I have a, a background, actually, in human anatomy, primarily neuroanatomy, the brain. And I ran a research lab for uh, 30-some years and focused mainly on the plasticity of the brain, which is what I'm going to talk about today. And that, in turn, led to some questions about how the brain is affected in diseases, like Alzheimer's disease. So I spent a fair amount of my time actually studying the, uh, the, the effects of injury on the brain. And that, in turn, led me to ask questions about how the brain normally responds to changes in the environment and so forth. So... In broad terms, I've been very interested in this question of how the brain is modified with experience and, and the like. Today, what I'd like to do is, is give you some context for that um, from my perspective. I think it's important to recognize that we all come with certain assumptions, certain worldviews. And I want to give you a little bit of that background from myself before I get into the details of talking about the brain and the plasticity of the brain. And to do that, I want to just focus on the idea that... Science, and I am a scientist, actually serves a critical role in terms of understanding truth. And uh, I have to give a disclaimer here, which is that I do believe there is such a thing as truth. It's not always a popular view these days. A lot of people think, oh, truth is whatever you just make up. Um, you can't actually do science with that in mind. It's, it's impossible if you just go in and assume there's nothing really to discover, nothing to really know. So science actually depends on the assumption that there's an external reality, a, a truth that's out there that I can at least in part know. But science is also limited. It's one window on the truth. And as I think the first, yeah, the first slide's up there just to show this idea that if you imagine truth being this large circle shown there, that science is one of those windows onto that circle. It's not the only one, but it's an important one. And I think, as you can imagine, being a scientist, uh, when I find myself in a group of, uh, of Christians, especially if they're fundamentalist Christians, uh, they often look at me with some skepticism and say, well, you know, we don't, you know science is okay, but you know, you're, you're not one of those people that believes in evolution or something, are you? And I say, well, actually I am, but... Uh, uh, I don't say that too loudly, actually. Um, but on the other hand, as a uh, Christian, you might imagine being in a group of scientists, and they find out that I'm a Christian, and they're like, oh, you're one of those Christians. You know, it's like. So I find myself in a very weird territory here when I, when I uh, either I'm a, science, a scientist among uh, Christians or a Christian among scientists. 
And, and of course, to make matters worse, I'm not a Christian scientist, uh, which is... Uh, <laughs> but the point I wanted to make here is that science is one of the windows we've got. I think it's a very important one. I'm biased towards it because that's how I've made my living for some time. Uh, but it's not the only one. And I think as this diagram illustrates, there are other avenues by which we can experience and understand truth. And to me, it's all about trying to integrate those into a, a worldview that's consistent, that we can make sense of, our, uh, of the world around us. So let me just briefly talk about what my view is of science. What is science? Well, there are a couple ways of thinking about it. One is that it's simply an approach to knowledge. I like to think of it as just applying logic to whatever you experience. So that's just a way of organizing what we experience. Another way is to say, well, all this information we gather, can we put into some kind of framework that we can then use to make sense of additional experience or additional evidence? So you can think, for example, of evolutionary theory or what's now called the Big Bang cosmology, which has to do with the origin of the universe. These are grand theories to try to explain a lot of the evidence that we see around us in the world. But a third important point is that science is, in fact, a culture. It's something conducted by human beings, so it brings with it all the same kinds of issues that any other uh, activity does, which is there are people that have agendas and people that have certain ideas that they want to push and so forth. So we need to keep in mind that just because a scientist says something, it isn't necessarily true, and I'm, you know, that you have applied that to me as well. Um, the one advantage that science has, however, is that you can ultimately go back and check whether or not their claims are supported by the evidence. That's not true in a lot of the other areas that give us windows on truth, but science actually is, is fairly good in that, in that regard. And what can science tell us? Okay, what, what is it that science actually allows us to learn? Well, one thing it does is talk about the nature of nature, of creation. It gives us a way of trying to understand how creation works, what it is, how it works. But science has a real limitation here. It doesn't give us any insight as to why things are the way they are. It doesn't give us any way of understanding purpose or ultimate purpose. It does come up with what are called laws, although you've got to be careful here because what laws are in the scientific sense simply means this is the way things always have worked when we've looked in the past. As far as we know, that's the way things work if we were to go out into other parts of the universe. But that's an assumption. We don't actually know for sure. It's a pretty reasonable assumption. I mean, if you get up in the morning and you think, okay, how likely is it the sun's going to rise today? You say, well, pretty likely, because every day I've gotten up, the sun has risen. So it's that kind of thing, that reproducibility that allows us to say, okay, science is giving us some insight on the way the universe normally works. Another thing that it does is it generates hypotheses. This is a, a great word, but really it's just a fancy way of saying it's a guess. It's our best guess about the way things work. So we've got to keep in mind that a hypothesis is simply taking the available evidence and saying, okay, this seems to make the most sense based upon what I know, taking everything into consideration. And I would argue that applies to theological claims as well. I do not believe that science and Christianity are in opposition to each other. That, as I said, God has given us science as a tool to experience one aspect of truth and that we actually ignore that at our peril. So, if I go on to the comparing science and Christianity, I just have a quick table um, that I want to point out here. Science and Christian faith actually agree on all these points. They're based on evidence, they're rational, they seek truth, 
They reveal mysteries, and I wish I had more time to talk about it because it's really important to understand that science actually doesn't explain everything. It actually reveals things that are not explainable. Uh, the dual particle nature of light is one example, wave particle nature of light. It's like everyone agrees, the scientists agree, that's the way light is. But no one can explain why it is that way. Okay, it's a mystery. So uh, is it open to new information? Well, hopefully, science absolutely certain, certainly is, and I would hope that in Christianity one has the same view. Does it have practical consequences? Absolutely. One area where there is a difference, as I mentioned before, science can make no claim about purpose, and as a result, it can make no claim about what ought to be. It simply says, this is the way things are. So when it comes to morality, how you should live or not live, science is silent on that. And the last point there is that it open to experimental testing. Well, traditionally, people would say Christianity is not actually the same as science that way. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I would argue that the claims made in the Bible are open to testing. They aren't open to experimental laboratory testing, but they're definitely open to testing on the part of the individual. So if you seek to follow the truth claims that are made in Scripture, then I would argue you can actually put those into practice and see whether or not they actually make a difference in your life. All right, so that comparison just makes the point that what we're trying to do through all this idea of what the brain is doing is understand truth. Now, what is the brain actually trying to accomplish? Well, it's basically building a model of reality. That's what your brain is about. Now, how is it going about doing that? Well, it's essentially taking all the experience that you have, and it's filtering that through prior experience as well as some pre-filters that you come born with, and then it's trying to make sense of that. It's building up a model through this process called learning. And I just want to kind of walk through... The, the difference here between establishing a belief versus establishing a basis for faith. Now, sometimes we think about belief and faith as being the same. But in fact, there's, some, there's a really important difference here. You can, you're free to actually believe anything you want. You can right now believe that you're living on the planet Pluto. Actually, Pluto's not a planet anymore, so it'd have to be some other planet. Um, the question becomes, is that belief reasonable? Does it, does it, is it consistent with the evidence, all the evidence taken together? Is it a reasonable belief or not? The question then becomes, well, how does that compare to faith? And the main difference here is that you can believe whatever you want. The question is, what do you do based upon that belief? And I would argue that's faith. So if, for example, you decide, I actually once visited my sister who lives in Michigan, and they have very cold winters up there. They've got a pond in her, in her backyard, and I, I came up there late, late, it was early in the spring, and starting to warm up. It, it looked as though the pond was frozen. And I asked her, I said, well, how long has it been cold? How long has it been sub-zero, whatever? And she kept telling me. And so I collected all this information about whether or not the pond was safe enough to walk on. I developed a belief, actually, that it would be safe to walk on the pond, that it was probably frozen enough. But there was no faith involved in that. When I walked out on the pond is when I exhibited faith. I said, okay. And sure enough, it held me up, fortunately, so my faith wasn't unfounded. Um, but we have to, again, just think, think about it. Just believing something, it's not actually, it doesn't actually get you anywhere in terms of this model of developing, that the brain's developing about reality. It's when you put that into practice, when you actually act on your belief, that you now get feedback to tell you whether or not that's a reasonable or unreasonable belief. All right. So what is this? 
uh, lead to? It leads to this concept of certainty. Uh, science has um, one, one, one of the ways in which science tries to establish certainty is to say we've got reproducible evidence that this is the way the world works. And the more reproducible it is, the more reliable it is, the more certain we, be, we can become. And some of these are dramatic demonstrations of the truth of the way the universe works. I put up here as an example this periodic table. Some of you probably are cringing because you remember from high school chemistry you having to learn it. Um, but in fact, this is a, this is a remarkable uh, observation, and it's not, it's not an invention. It's a discovery. The guy that figured this out, Mendel, the guy that figured this out, he realized that there was this consistency in the way things were working, the way stuff was actually working and interacting. And he started putting that together and saying, wow, you know, this actually can be organized in a particular fashion. And so it's just an example where we can be quite certain now, because there's so much evidence to suggest that this is actually the way chemistry works, that there are elements that are composed of specific configurations of protons and neutrons and so forth, and they react and interact with each other in a certain way. So we can be very certain about that because it's so reproducible and so reliable. Other things we're less certain about. When, it talks about claim, when we talk about claiming we know what the, about the origin of the universe, eh, it's a little tricky because we don't have the reproducibility of whatever went on in the past to bring it to laboratory and say, oh, okay, we can now say this is the way things continue to work. But again, we have evidence, and we're trying to pull all that evidence together and make sense of it. So again, that's what the brain is doing. The brain is sitting there making, trying to make sense of all the experiences that it has and building a model of reality. So let's just go through it. Uh, oh, there's a nice brain, actually. Yeah, um, <clears throat> That was a real brain. Not, not a living brain, actually. Uh, it was a dead brain. But... Um, it came from someone who was reasonably healthy before that. So I was going to actually show you a brain of an Alzheimer's patient just to show the comparison, but I realized that was kind of off topic. So why did I mention that? I don't know. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so we think about the sequence by which the brain is going to build up a model. All right. Very simple stuff. You, you, those of you who took psychology, you, you're going to know some of this. Um, starts with the stimulus, right? You get something happens and it, it has an impact on you in some way. The stimulus leads to a response. Uh, that could be an external response. It could be an internal response. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of what I'm trying to talk about. And then that response produces a particular outcome, a result. All right? So we can think about a very simple stimulus, response, output, or effect. And then the question is, what's done with that? Well, it turns out that what the brain does with that is actually store information in the process of learning and memory that then can be used to modify the subsequent response to the same stimulus. So, in fact, 90% of psychology, those of you who took psychology, is all built around this model of the brain. Can you, oops, is that me? Sorry. Okay. Um, sometimes I get a little animated and I uh, knock the technology out. But anyway. Uh, so, what the brain's doing is basically building up this loop of saying, okay, stimulus, response, what am I going to do based on the output that I got or the result I got from that response? Now, that's the basic loop that the brain uses to start building up a model of the external world, of how the world actually works. But there's an important component that's not in this loop that actually brings in something that neuroscientists agree exists in the brain, 
but no one really understands exactly how that works, and that's the concept of will. The idea that actually you can have an impact on both the stimulus and the response. Well, how, how does that work? Well, the stimulus side of it, you can simply decide not to expose yourself to a particular stimulus. So if there's a lion that's coming to eat you and you see all the cues that the lion is growling, you can, you can run away. You can say, okay, all right, well, I'm not going to be exposed to that stimulus in the future. So that's a reasonable response change of behavior that allows you to then say, okay, now I've got an understanding about the possibility of a lion eating me, so I'm going to incorporate that in my worldview and try to avoid the lion in the future. Especially if you saw your buddy getting eaten by a lion, then you know what the outcome of that might be. So the will actually provides this very interesting and quite mysterious uh, impact on how the brain undergoes this process of learning and memory. We don't know exactly how that works, but from my point of view, this is actually critical to understanding the idea that the brain actually has this capacity to be modified to change as a result of prior stimulus and, and change its response to it. So let's take a look quickly at the next slide, and I'll just I'll try to summarize three properties of the brain that I think capture the essential features of what allows the brain to do what it does. And those are rigidity, plasticity, and fluidity. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, rigidity, I've got here a nice piece of concrete. This is a rigid substance. So it turns out that there are some aspects of the way the brain functions that are comparable to this piece of concrete. That is, they're not going to change no matter what you do, uh, short of injury. But normally, this is going to be built in. So the circuits that allow you to breathe on a regular basis, that control your heart rate, all the things that are actually vital to survival are fall into this category of rigid properties of the brain. At the other end of the spectrum, actually I think some of you already have this foam rubber brain, um, this is, this is the, the fluidity, representing the fluidity of the brain. Now what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that you can, you can exert a stimulus on the brain, but when you, when you remove the stimulus, there's no lasting impression. So this is actually made out of foam rubber. Those of you who played with this, you know what I'm talking about. So yeah, it's responsive, but it doesn't remember anything, okay? So the key property that we really are most interested in is that of plasticity. And what is plasticity? Well, it's basically the idea that it's, it's modifiable, it's deformable, it's impressionable. But the key is, now if I press in it the same way I was pressing on the foam of a brain, the difference is that I now leave a distinct impression on the brain, okay? So that's the concept of plasticity that there is a modifiable aspect to the brain, that the stimulus actually results in a long-lasting change. So again, the stimulus, thinking about well, what ways can we change what, how the brain is modified, is simply by thinking about what kind of stimuli, what stimulation we expose ourselves to, what actually gives us a particular impression. Now, I wanted to just try to bring in some real science here in terms of the age-related changes that, for example, occur in the brain as a function of, of uh, the, ch the changes in plasticity as a function of age. And just want to show one slide here of, uh, this is just a, a scene of, of three people that are sitting around a fireplace, uh, an infant with their mother and an old man. The idea here being that your brain is plastic, but it changes, it becomes more and more rigid with age. 
it actually loses plasticity with age. So there's a couple things to keep in mind here. Now, it doesn't completely lose it, but what it does suggest is that the critical time during which you want to start developing an accurate model of the world is when the brain is most plastic. It doesn't mean that there's no going back, but the point is that the older you get, the, the more difficulty you will have sometimes of actually changing the way your, your worldview, your understanding of, of, of the reality. So we want to keep that in mind. I want to give you two examples from the literature, scientific literature, about the kind of plasticity that the brain is capable of exhibiting. And the first comes from uh, a, a case that is uh, encountered rarely, but often enough to actually establish with beyond doubt that this is what happens in these situations. And that is when an infant undergoes, has some uh, disorder that leads to intractable epilepsy, that is just continuous seizures. And the example that's shown here is that this is actually a brain scan of a, this is a, now a seven-year-old child who at the age of three underwent a complete removal of one half of the brain in order to control seizures. So it's, I hope everyone can tell that there's half a brain missing there. Can anyone not see that? Okay. So this is, uh, this is just a remarkable example of, first of all, being able to survive that kind of injury. But what's even most remarkable about this is that this child at the age of seven, having lost the part of the brain that normally would account for language development, actually is now fluent in two languages at the age of seven. So what does that tell you? What it, well, it tells you only need half a brain, I guess, for one thing. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, what it tells you is that at, at the age of three, you're able, your brain is able to actually, it's so plastic, it's able to actually compensate and take over the functions that otherwise would have been given to the part of the brain that's been, that's been taken away. That same surgery done after the age of 10 or 12 would produce lifelong deficits that you would not be able to recover from. So just a dramatic example of the fact that, yes, your brain is incredibly plastic, and it's much more plastic the younger you are, and so take home for me is the idea of how important it is that the worldview that you grew up with is actually critical for your ultimate understanding of reality. The other example I want to give, so when people were thinking about the, this idea of plasticity, they said, well, you know, it's interesting, but that's all like infant, you know, children types of neurology. So what about adults? Do we ever see any kind of example where it's not just, you know, response to injury, but just normal changes in the brain that occur as a result of learning and memory? And there was a group that, in London that was studying this in a number of different animal species, and they found that almost every animal species that they studied, there was one part of the brain that seemed to correlate, the size of which correlated with whether or not that animal had to spend its time trying to figure out where things were in space, spatial navigation. And so they came up with this idea, well, maybe the same thing might happen in people. Are there people who spend a lot of time navigating space? Maybe we could look and see whether or not the, the brain region that we know is involved with that is different in those people compared to people who don't do that kind of thing. And they settled on the idea of studying the brains of London cabbies. Because it turns out, um, I think in the next slide shows, that in order to be a London cabbie driver, you have to memorize the 25,000 streets of the London city map. Not only do you have to memorize them, you have to know how to get from point A to point B within that very complicated map. So it's spatial navigation to the 10th degree, right? I mean, it's like 
you really have to understand the map. So they studied the brains of these cabbies and found out, sure enough, the next slide I think it's got the MRI data, that that one area where you see the white spots, that's actually the area called the hippocampal formation, which is the area that mediates spatial navigation. And it turned out it was much larger than people who do not rely on that for a living. So just again, a very dramatic case, a dramatic example of the kinds of changes that can go on in the brain. In this case, not because of injury. I also point out these are adult individuals. So again, the modifiability wasn't lost. Not as dramatic as what we saw with the infant, but in fact, a fairly dramatic case of the brain actually being able to change its actual shape and size in particular regions based upon experience, based upon how you were using the brain. So what is that, where does that leave us? Well, I think the question that I would want to focus on then is, given this data that the brain is modifiable, it does have this ability to, to, to change in response to stimulation, then what is it going to change to be like? That's really the question. So I mentioned at the outset, I think the point of what the brain's trying to do is figure out what's going on in the world. So it's developing a model of reality. The question then is how accurate is that model compared to reality? And of course, this is where the major differences are in the claims about the truth that come out all over the place when you start trying to think about, well, who's got the right, the most accurate truth claims, right? So we've got to think about how do we know, how do we test whether or not a particular truth claim is accurate or not. In science, we can go into a laboratory and start doing some experiments and say, oh, well, this fits a particular model of the universe or not. And those models have changed over time. I mean, there's one point where a lot of people thought, well, maybe the Earth really was the center of the universe and that everything else was rotating around it. And, and you know, that model of the Earth, the, the Earth being the center of the universe it had to be changed as more evidence was accumulated. In the same way, I would argue that we have to do the same thing as we acquire more evidence about what's going on in the world around us. Now, I mentioned to you that I'm a Christian. So for me, I, I didn't actually, I didn't start off saying, okay, well, God's, the Bible is, makes the most sense of the world. Um, I was very much into exploring alternative explanations, alternative models of truth and so forth. And those of you who heard me talk about my experience um, of hearing Bob Dylan, that what, what happened there was that I had this experience where there was a coincidence where I heard Bob Dylan sing a song that mimicked something my grandmother, who was a very strong Christian, had told me the same morning. So what I had to do was say, okay, I have, I have two possibilities of explaining that coincidence. It was a coincidence, right? It happened in approximate time and space. So I had to decide, well, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to interpret that evidence? And what struck me at the time was that I had already decided, my worldview at the time was that, well, it's only a coincidence. It's just a coincidence. And what I had to consider was the possibility that maybe it was a coincidence with purpose. Maybe it was a coincidence with meaning. Maybe, actually, it was evidence that I needed to incorporate into my worldview. And that was the start of a journey. It wasn't that all of a sudden, now I've seen the light, I understand it all. No, it was nothing like that. It was like, okay, maybe now I need to revise my hypothesis about the way the world works, my model of reality, and start trying to think about that. And in the process, and that was over 30 years ago, 
I came to believe, and I do believe, and I act on this belief. So my faith is actually that the claims made in the Bible, the truth claims in the Bible, are in fact the best explanation for the world that I see around me. So that's the way that I live my life, is trying to refine my hypothesis, continue to seek understanding by living according to those beliefs. So all of the claims in Christianity can really be summarized in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to, I want to pull out a couple of scriptures here, one of which I know Chad, Chad has already um, mentioned to you, and that is where Paul talks about being conformed to this world, uh, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that idea, Paul is already agreeing that, in fact, it's possible to change your worldview, to have your brain now be conformed to a model based upon God's reality as opposed to what the world, the secular world, might tell you. So Paul is actually being very explicit here. And it's interesting, I did a, I'm no Greek scholar, but I did a little bit of a word study on that idea of renewing and found out that actually another translation of it is renovation. And since we've recently undergone some renovation in our house, I, I had that special affinity for that idea, which is it's not simply like going into the driver's license bureau and saying, I need to renew my license. And you, they give you, okay, new date on the license. It's actually there's a restructuring that's going on here. So Paul's saying that this is really part of what you're, you're seeking to do, is to actually restructure your understanding of the way the world is. And that restructuring is going to be based upon what God has revealed. And, of course, that's all culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've got one, I think, a couple of last passages I want to give here uh, on the assumption that a model of truth that we should be seeking and, and trying to understand is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And the, the examples Jesus said to him, I am the way, and he makes his claim, which is an outrageous claim. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's contingent upon those of us who believe this to actually try to work out what that means in terms of our model of reality. In Colossians, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So, again, which model of reality are you going to attend to? Paul's saying that which is above. And then finally, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. So a major source of our understanding of reality comes through scripture. And that's my story. So I'm going to hand over to you, Chad. It's interesting that last passage he referred to in Second uh, Timothy actually talks about four different ways that the Bible can actually transform us. Um, reproof, correction. One is to give you a right belief. The other is to correct a wrong belief. The one is to give you a right behavior. The other is to correct a wrong behavior. And it's interesting because a lot of us have been really impacted by the Greek uh, idea that our, our minds or our thoughts, our intellect, uh, occurs in the brain. And so we think a lot that this is where our thoughts reside because we've been influenced so highly by Hellenism. But our passions are in our heart. Our, our wants are in our heart. The real us is in our heart. That's sort of as Americans we talk. 
What's interesting is that the Hebrews, uh, the Jewish people, which Jesus was and came from, described something different. They actually said that the heart, the literal word they used back then was your gut. Your gut, which they used the word heart, your heart was the place your thoughts resided. It was the place that your passions resided. And so really what we're doing is we're saying, God, I've got a lot of beliefs, a lot of hypotheses. And I want to know if you could help me, give me some right beliefs that I could check out. I got some wrong beliefs in my mind, and I'd like you to sort of put your finger on those areas and show some areas that need to be transformed and need to be shaped. But rather than thinking about this just as a, as, as a mind, it's almost say, God, I want you to shape my mind into a heart. So this week, as we were, were working at it together, I was, I was talking to the team. I said, what if I just came up in front of everybody and I, and, I, and I shaped this brain into a heart? And I did that before the team, and they said, it looks like a uterus. So I worked at it a little bit more, and they said, looks like a canine molar. And the reason we need outside stimulus is because sometimes you try it on your own, and you're like, I need access to something bigger than me. I need somebody else's wisdom. I need somebody else's truth. I need somebody who is an expert on forming and shaping the brain, somebody who maybe even came up with the same thing. So part of the process of spiritual renewal is saying, God, I want you to shape my thoughts into my heart. I want you to make me into the person you designed me to be. Correct my thoughts. Give me new beliefs. Correct wrong beliefs. Show me what right behaviors look like because my brain can trick me as to what is right. And also help me in grace to convict me of wrong beliefs. So instead of me trying to shape a brain into a heart, maybe you've tried it on your own for a while. Maybe instead you need to hand it to the potter. And say, God, I'm the clay. I've made a mess of some things. I thought I was going in the right direction, but not so much. So during this next song, I want you to think and ask yourself, God, what would it look like today for you to begin to hand over that heart and soul and mind to a potter and ask them to shape your mind into a heart that you were designed to love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul? It's interesting that many times when uh, you look at people's beliefs, they feel like a circumstance is pushing in on your life or, or some bad circumstance happens. And the belief you have is that God must be angry at me. God must be mad at me because he's put some pressure in my life. He's put some stimulus in my life. And it might be that rather than the thought, God's angry at me, God's mad at me, God's after me, there might be a meta thought, maybe a metaphor of a potter. God is pushing in because he's shaping me. He's conforming me. He's drawing me, my thoughts, my passions, my desires, because he wants to be in relationship with me. You may not be ready for that hypothesis yet, but I want to challenge you to do what Keith did, was begin to say, maybe the things I've rejected, I have a presupposition toward not even accepting that as evidence. And begin to say, what if instead of thinking God doesn't exist, he doesn't get involved and he doesn't care, what if instead you said, God, I want to be open to the possibility that you could shape my mind and shape my heart because I want to have a better marriage. I want to have a better relationship with my kids. I want to have deeper purpose and meaning. God, I'm open to you shaping my heart. Let's pray together. Maybe you just want to share that with God this morning. Maybe it's that simple. Say, God, I want to be open to you shaping my thoughts. And maybe, for those of us who are over 40, we want to hear the words of Keith who said, if we just keep doing what comes natural, we're going to not have new thoughts. And say, God, help my heart and my mind not to be hard. 
or rigid toward you. Father, help our hearts not to be rigid toward our spouses, toward our kids. God, all through the Bible you talk about a tender heart. God, would you give us your thoughts so we could stay tender toward the people in our lives and the circumstances in our life? And through all these things, Father, we ask that you would make us in the kind of people that you'd have us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Thanks for being here today. We're going to build on this with a fourth step of how do you actually renew those thoughts and get very, very practical next week on how this actually plays out. So as you leave today, if you came prepared to give us some offering boxes, if you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. The third door on your left is the hearth room. We'll see you next week for Thought Bubbles as I talk about how to renew your mind in a way that transforms everything. Thanks again.